Well, open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy tonight. 1 Timothy. We kind of went topical this morning with Proverbs 31 and 1 Timothy chapter 2, talking about the godly counsel uh, that comes from a, a mother, and then here this influence that God has afforded to women post fall. And then, the, uh, as Rich even mentioned in his prayer, the, the uh, legacy, the promise of witness, the legacy of faith that can be, can be passed on. And I want to go back and pick up 1 Timothy chapter 2, all of it this morning, and this time focus on what we, what we left out. And it actually begins with, with the men. It's maybe familiar territory for for some of you, we haven't looked at 1 Timothy chapter 2 for probably about five years or so. We covered this passage whenever uh, we preached a series. I preached a series on how to know a pastor when you see one because this is one of the pastoral epistles along with 2 Timothy and also Titus. That's explicitly written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. gives us great insight into, into the church. And I think it's a very good reminder, even for us this evening, um, because of the, besides the fact that it's the Word of God, the direction that our culture is, uh, is going in. Um, what I'll preach to you tonight, what I preach to you this morning, which is not anything unique, not anything new to you, not anything that comes by... Uh, comes as a shock to you that the Bible says a number of the things that that we articulated or that it says, but um, that is that's not the the direction that that the culture is is headed in. And a number of things that I preached to you this morning would be highly controversial uh, in certain parts of America, and um, would uh, will continue to will continue to be so. Um, so what does that mean for us as a church? That means that you need to steel yourself in the truth, that you need to understand what the Bible says. You need to have a firm conviction about what the Bible says. I don't have to convince you as believers that the Scripture is the authority in your life, not culture or psychiatry or anything else. It is the Bible. I shouldn't have to convince you of that because you're already bought into that. You, The fact that you're a believer, you're a Christian, says that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He is your Savior. He's the one that rescues you from hell. But He's also your Lord, your Master. And how do you know what the Master teaches? How do you follow Him? He has given us all of His truth. He's revealed Himself. He's revealed everything about you, about life, about godliness in this blessed book that you, that you possess. But it's not enough to possess it. You have to understand it. And you have to study it, and you have to be, you have to hold to it. And it's going to be uh, more and more difficult to do that as, as time goes on. That's not a bad thing. That will sharpen your focus, that will, that will have a purifying effect on the church, but um, you don't want to be a casualty uh, in, that, in that process. So, Let's read 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. 
Paul says, therefore, I exhort, first of all, that all supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner, on the flip side, the other side of the coin, in like manner also the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety or shamefacedness, if you have an authorized version, King James, and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but a woman being deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved, restored, childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and and self-control. It's been said a good summary of of the tasks the church has been given to. Two great tasks. It's to evangelize the world and to edify the saints. Spread the gospel to the uttermost parts of, of the world, of the earth, and to edify, to strengthen, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Or to say it as we do in our little mission statement, we're, we're to make Christ known and His Word clear. We love God by obeying His command to build up His body, and we love God, we express our love for God by proclaiming His name to the nations. And and 1 Timothy chapter 2 provides some specific commands to, to, to us in the church, both men and women. And those commands are specific to, to the genders. They're specific commands rooted in God's design, pre fall prior to the fall jesus as we said this morning goes the same place he goes to the book of genesis before the fall he goes to creation he goes to the place that records what god as your creator as my creator as the creator of all men and women on the entire planet how he made them and how he designed them and how he ordered things In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul gives instructions to men and then also to women. We covered part of the women this morning. We'll cover the the other part of commands that he gives to to ladies. But he begins with with the men. Now, Timothy's been sent to Ephesus, as you know, to correct some some erring aspects of the the congregation. He has has a difficult task. The church at Ephesus was a significant church. Can you think of a, of a church that would be significant in somewhere in church history? If you go to London today and you 
know anything about church history, you'll probably end up at Charles Spurgeon's church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Well, Charles Spurgeon obviously is not there any longer, but that church is a significant church. You could probably go to a number of other significant churches or churches that used to be significant. The buildings are there. It's a different congregation, a different group of people. Well, Ephesus was a significant church. You have 1 Timothy, you have 2 Timothy, you have Timothy being written about Ephesus, to Ephesus, you have Timothy pastoring the church at Ephesus, you have the Apostle Paul involved with Ephesus, you have the Gospel writer John was at Ephesus for a period of time, and you have a letter in the book of Revelation written by Jesus himself to the church at Ephesus. And you can go today to the ruins of the church in Ephesus. And just as Jesus foretold and declared in the book of Revelation that just because you were a church at one point doesn't mean that you will continue if you fail to follow the, the Word. He says, I'll remove you from the lampstand, and evidently that happened to the church at Ephesus. Well, we're on the front end. We're where the problems are there and God has been gracious to the church, and He has sent a man there to try to correct some of the some of the issues. And Paul writes a letter to Timothy to give him direction. And he starts by outlining his plan for men and women in the church. And, and he addresses two things. First, men are to lead in humble prayer. And secondly... Women are adorn themselves, or to adorn themselves with, with holy conduct. He deals with, with how to act in the church, how to conduct yourself in the church. And he says men are to lead in humble prayer, and women are to adorn themselves in, in holy conduct. That's the full context of chapter 2. I know we go there for the issue of of who can teach and who can't, and we go for there for the issue of modesty, and we go there for other things. But those are the two big sections. Now, these are not the only things that men and women do in the church, but these are issues that Paul has to address. And I think that they are particularly helpful to us because both of those issues track with the sinful tendencies of both sexes after the fall. Now, God created men and women specific and distinct to operate in specific ways, and the fall affected us, changed our bodies, didn't it? We, we grow older, our bodies break down, and they're not evolving upward, they're, they're heading downward quickly, at least mine is. And I know, I know I'm still in my 40s. Wait till I get in my 60s or 70s or 80s or whatever, whatever the, the age is. The fall affected us physically. It also affected our minds. The Bible tells us that natural men don't understand the things of God. They need the aid of the Holy Spirit. The Bible also tells us to renew our minds. The Bible also tells us that, that the fall affected our spirit. Well, one of the one of the, the outflows of that, of that fall is the way that men and women relate to one another. And after the fall, men, while they're to lead and women are to, are to support, after the fall, a sinful tendency 
for men is to be lazy and fall to the back. Let someone else do it. Let your wife do it. And women have a sinful tendency to assert and take charge. I think that's exactly what Scripture is talking about where he says in the, when, when God is pronouncing the curses, your, your desire will be for him, but he shall rule over you. He says this to Eve. It's, your desire will be to, to lead, but he will be in a position over you. And so both of these commands that are given here, men are to lead in humble prayer, attacks the sinful tendency that men have after the fall to fall to the back and, and, and not lead and let somebody else do it. And women are to adorn themselves in holy conduct, attacks the sinful tendency that women have to assert and step forward whenever there's, whenever there's, a, there's a gap. Now you understand that I'm speaking in generalities. Men are supposed to be supporting. Sometimes women need to kick their husbands in the pants and thank God for women that do that. But as a normal way of life, a pattern of creation is, is what Paul is addressing here. And when, when, that, when that support role comes to, comes to be the, the habit and the normal way of life and that assertion comes to be a normal a normal pattern, specifically in the church or in the home, it, things can get out of whack. And evidently that's what's happened in Ephesus. Men had stopped leading in prayer, specifically for the lost, and women are trying to dominate and, and, to, and to lead. And so he begins with where he should, the same place God does. Adam, where are you? And Paul says to us, men, where are you as it relates to prayer? Look at verse 1. He says, Therefore I exert you, first of all, that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made for, for all men. First of all. The fact that one of the very first things Paul addresses in the letter is prayer is significant. In anything that you put first on the list, anything that you repeat multiple times, expresses significance, and this is significant. He says, first of all. I urge you, I beseech you, literally, I come alongside you and strive with you to make prayer a priority in the, in the church. The word beseech is, or exhort means it's the same word that, where you get the term the Holy Spirit. He's the paraclete, parakaleo. It shows the passion of Paul's heart. He's not just saying, well, guys, I really want you to pray. He's saying, first of all, I exhort you. I, am, I want to come alongside and strive with you in this. I, he, Paul is passionately speaking to the men in the church. It shows the passion of Paul's heart. Paul is urging them that one of the main concerns that the church is to, is to have is, is prayer. You remember uh, back in the book of Acts, and we've talked about the Gospels and the book of Acts and then the epistles that follow. The Gospels are narrative. They tell, the, they tell the story of Jesus and His coming and John the Baptist being the forerunner and the, and the incarnation of Christ and His perfect life and His proof of His righteousness, proof that, that He fulfilled the claims of the Old Testament, that He was the Messiah. He, he gave sight to the blind. He, 
He raised the dead. He did those things. His death, his burial, his resurrection, it tells that, it tells that story. It's narrative. There are a lot of things in there that are prescriptive, but not everything in there is prescriptive. It's narrative. And then when you get to the book of Acts, the book of Acts is the narrative. It's the story of how the church explodes, how the Holy Spirit builds the church through the gospel, through the apostles, and it tells the story. And you know the ascension and the beginning of the book of Acts, and then they go to Jerusalem and they wait until they're empowered by the Holy Spirit, and then Peter steps up and he preaches and many are saved and then the church begins to grow. And then the first problem, well, probably not the first problem, one of the first problems is that's included in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 6, right? There's some infighting, there's some um, division in the church about the widows that aren't being taken care of and the apostles set aside men, the church sets aside men for the solving of that issue. And he says that the men of God, it's, it's proper for this to happen because the men of God need to devote themselves to two things. What are the two things? Prayer and study of the Word. Prayer and the Word. Prayer and the Word. And here, Paul brings... Not just the pastors, not just the elders, not just the those who would be responsible for handling the Word of God in the church. But he brings the whole church back to the issue of prayer. And it's not just any kind of prayer. It's prayer specifically for the lost. Now, there are a lot of things that you have to be engaged in as a church. A lot of things that you can do. Plenty of things that you can do. There are a number of things that we're commanded to do. We must do. We must preach and teach to the edification of the saints. We must equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's a command. We must worship God in His assembly whenever we gather together. We, We must raise our children in the ways of the Lord and train them. We must be good citizens and make the mind of God known. And none of those things can fail. It's not an option. Paul's not saying it's an either-or here. All of those things have to happen. But if a church loses its heart for sharing the gospel, it's lost its heart. I mean, the gospel is our message. It's the good news. For a church to, to lose that passion, that, that vision, that, that desire to do so, it's like, Become like a newspaper without print, a book without words, a well without, without water. And Paul's answer to correct that is to send them to prayer. You see that? Therefore I exhort, first of all, supplications, prayers, and intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, all who are in authority, that, they, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. There's the first part, in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. Our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. Paul's answer to correct that is to send them to prayer. Is that what you do? Whenever you see something that needs fixed, do you follow Paul's admonition here? Whenever you think of an issue that's in, that's in your personal life, is your first inclination to go to prayer? 
Whenever you see an issue in your family, is your first inclination to go to prayer? When you see some issue in your spouse, is your first inclination to go to prayer or let your spouse know about that issue? Whenever you see an issue in the church, whenever you see an issue in Timberlake Baptist Church, is your first inclination to go to prayer? Because that's what Paul says. Paul says that we pray. And he's urging them unto prayer. And he describes it from several angles to fill in the lines of what he means. He says supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks. Well, the first word, supplications or entreaties, means to means prayer that is motivated by, by a sense of need that someone else has. It the root is a is to lack or to be deprived. To be without something. It's it's a it's a it's a passionate word. It it's a it's a it's a kind of prayer that's motivated by, by having a sense of need. It's to see the need of others and plead with God on that on that basis. It's to see the the need of lost people blind and deaf and dumb and hopeless it's to see their Christless eternity. The second word that he gives is prayers. It just this centers on, on God. It's it's a normal word for prayer. It's it's prayer that's offered to God by worship. This kind of prayer is directed to God and it's an acknowledgement of of need and, and his power. Prayer is not leveraging God um, by your effort or changing God's mind or changing God's heart. God's heart doesn't need to be changed. Your heart needs to be changed. My heart needs to be changed. Prayer is a humble request for God's, for God's power. Prayer changes us into vessels so that, so that God can use us to accomplish that work. A lot of times prayer actually changes us into the very vessel that God wants to use to accomplish the very thing that we are, that we're praying. He gives another word, intercessions, petitions. It's an interesting word. It's only used twice in the New Testament here and also in chapter 4, verse 5. It's what the Spirit does when he makes intercession in Romans chapter 8:26 it means to fall in with or to draw near it it's the idea prayer for for someone for the lost is is falling in with them it it's the kind of prayer that that Moses prayed when he pleaded with God not to destroy the people of Israel you remember when God tells Moses Stand back, let me wipe these bunch of turkeys out, and I'll create a new people for you to lead. And Moses pleads with the Lord. It's the kind of prayer that the Apostle Paul performs in Romans 9. You remember how Romans 9 begins? Paul says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. It's that kind of prayer. It's falling in with them. It's, 
It's associating with them. It's pleading with the Lord. It's not possible for the Apostle Paul to be accursed from Christ, but he's saying if, if that was possible, I mean, he's pouring out his heart. It's intercession. It's a prayer that says, God, I know they deserve wrath. I, wrath, I was one of them, and I ask that you stay your hand. It's to take up their cause. It's to pull in the hem of the garment of God's compassion and say, God, have mercy. Please. Lastly, he mentions thanksgiving. The giving of thanks. He says in prayer, there should be thanksgiving to God. I've heard some people say they thank God. Whenever they pray, they thank God for for answering the prayer before, before God ever answers it. And if you listen closely, they're actually thanking God for the answer that they're requesting. And I always think, what if God doesn't choose to answer it in that way? I think what Paul is saying here is giving thanks to God for whatever God's hand brings in your life. And that takes humility, doesn't it? And you've been there in prayer. You started to pray to the Lord and you're pouring out your heart and you're laying out your case and you're telling Him exactly what you need and why you need it and why this person needs it. And it's you're pleading with the Lord and somewhere in that prayer God begins to work in your heart. You're remembering who God is. You're claiming those promises. And somewhere in the midst of the prayer you get changed and by the end of it you started with God, give me this and you ended with God, whatever you want to give me. I thank you for Have you ever been there in prayer? Paul says, thanksgiving. Interesting, he tells us who these prayers are to be offered for. He says, all men. And then he goes to an aspect of, of society that we sometimes leave out. Verse 2, four kings and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and and reverence. Now, typically, we pray for the people that we know. And Paul says, don't just stop with the people that you know. Pray globally. And he says, also pray for those who are in authority. Now, the king here that Paul would have been speaking about was Nero. Not the most godly sort of fellow. Very wicked man, a blasphemer, and Paul says, pray for him that the church may lead a quiet and and tranquil life. I think it is completely appropriate to pray for our current president that God would save his soul. I don't believe he's a saved man any more than the man in the moon is saved, if there was such a thing as a man in the moon. Pray for his salvation. Nero persecuted Christians as much or more than any other emperor. He persecuted Christians the same way that people in power persecute Christians today, our president included, and yet Paul says that the church is to make that type of person a target for evangelistic prayer. And the words that he uses here, why you should do that, is so the church can can have a tranquil and quiet 
life, quiet outward, tranquil inward. And Paul says passionate prayer is the weapon. So I ask myself the question before I preach this to you, do I pray like that? Is my first inclination to go to prayer for issues. And that desire must be cultivated. If it's there, it must be cultivated, not just by me, but by all the men in the church. Look at verse 8. He says, I desire therefore, or therefore I desire that men, it's a specific word, it's, it's andros, it's, it's males. This is not mankind. I, I desire, therefore, I want, it's, it's a strong word, it's, the word bulamai, it's not that I just hope this happens. He's saying I will this to happen, command this to happen. That men, males, I want men in every place, everywhere, that is in every church, not just in Ephesus, but in Timberlake Baptist Church, in every church, I want the men in every place, in every church to pray. And he's already told us what kind of prayer and how to pray and why. I want them to pray. To lead in prayer. God is saying in the church that that's where evangelism begins. It begins with the men in the church leading in, in prayer. I know you've heard it before. Somebody that you struggle with, somebody that you don't really care for, if you something about that person grates you or gets on your nerves, you are to pray for them. And you'll find as you begin to pray for them, your heart will begin to change. I think the same thing happens whenever we're cold or whenever we lack passion or desire about something. When You can't take something that that is clear in the Scriptures, that's the heart of God, like the Gospel, extending to the uttermost parts of the earth, like the lost, and begin to pray about that. And God, not to begin to build a fire in your heart. And when that fire begins to build in your heart, it spreads to, to others. And the men in the church are the ones that are to be leading that, that charge Prayerlessness is the first place to look rather than any number of things, programs or children's ministries or music or preaching or whatever it is. It's prayerlessness. Um, One of the most shameful and glorious things that a church can experience is to go to a prayer meeting or have a prayer meeting and see... 90% of the people there are women. I said, it's shameful and glorious. It's shameful because it reveals that the men have left their posts. They've walked off the battlefield. They're not engaged in leading. It's glorious from the standpoint that there are godly women in the church, praise the Lord for them, that will follow the Lord even without being led. How a man talks to God reveals what he knows about God, and if God's heart beats within him, then that man's heart will be pure. Look at verse 8. I desire 
a command that the males, the men in the church, lead in prayer. They pray in every church, lifting up holy hands without wrath and, and doubting, without wrath or dissension. This is not a required posture for prayer. It's not that whenever you pray, you lift up, lift up your hands to pray. You look up into heaven. It's not a posture for, or prerequisite for effectiveness in prayer. It's, it symbolizes the man's life. A man's heart and his prayer life are connected. The word holy means unpolluted or unstained, and one's hands symbolizes their, their life. He's saying in prayer, if men are to lead in prayer, your life must be genuine. There must not be a double identity. Um, have you ever maybe turned on the turned on the television and and observed someone that's disgraced, someone in the ministry that's been disgraced, and you hear them? You hear them talk about the things of the Lord and yet you know the testimony of their life and then what's coming out of their mouth is different. I'm not talking about somebody that, that's repentant and has proved their repentance by their life. I'm talking about somebody that would be a genuine hypocrite. Maybe you see someone lead. Maybe you see someone sing. Maybe you see someone do something and you know because you're in private counsel with them that there is a sin pattern in their life that they refuse to deal with. There's something that goes on in your heart, isn't there? It's like something's incongruent here. Why are you doing that? Why are you presenting yourself one way publicly when, when I know the way you are in, in private? He says the prayer life for a man is the same way. Your life is genuine. In prayer doesn't change God, but it changes us. And the vessel that, that's used by the, by the Lord is not, is not perfect, but it is clean. Cleansed by the blood of Christ. Paul is saying that a life that's filled with unholy things will be reluctant to go to God in, in prayer. Let me ask you a question. Whenever, whenever your conscience bothers you about something, is your natural inclination to run toward God or to hide from God? What's the natural inclination? Do you see that in the Bible? Well, what did Adam do? Your natural inclination when your conscience bothers you and when you're unwilling to do anything about it is not to get close to God, it's to stay far away from, from God. It's what dissension indicates man who's not walking with the Lord or living as a child of God to be hesitant to come to the Lord, to lack confidence in in prayer. You'll think, why would God hear me? I mean, look what's going on in my life. And so so Paul says, same thing James does. James says, cleanse your hands. Lift up holy hands without wrath and undoubting. And, and after calling on men in humble prayer... Paul then turns to the, the ladies. Look at verse 9. Women are to adorn themselves with holy conduct. Verse 9. In like manner also, 
that the women, a general term for for women, adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and, and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. He says here that, now remember, he's correcting a problem. Women must arrange themselves in holy conduct. I think that's the best way to summarize the, summarize the verse. Of course, that means free from intentional seductiveness, but it means far more than that. Um, the idea that Paul gives here to adorn themselves in modest apparel, the idea is, is any appearance that distracts from, from God. It's not just short skirts or anything else. It's, it's anything that when, when a person walks in the room, they, they, they're intentionally drawing the focus on themselves. And here in Ephesus, you can go and read a number of commentaries and otherwise will tell you some of the practices of the day, culturally. Culturally, the women in that day were wearing expensive clothing and jewelry and they were flaunting themselves and, and they were putting their wealth on display, not just their bodies. And yet that can be difficult to discern at times. Sometimes it's pretty plain, <laughs> but sometimes it's difficult to discern. And I think the verse gives you a, a clue of how to discern. How's a woman to discern this? Because, I mean, I think you can get hyper. He's not saying that you ladies are to, uh, you know, to show up in church with a, with a burqa or a gunny sack and no makeup on. That's not what he's saying. He, the, the word that's used here for adorn themselves is, is that word arrange. They're to, they're to present themselves, to arrange themselves properly. And, and then he goes on with some additional description here, with propriety and moderation. With this, not with this. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. That's the issue that was going on in in. In Ephesus, it doesn't mean that you can't come to church with braided hair. It doesn't mean that you can't come to church with gold on. It doesn't mean that you can't wear a necklace. It doesn't mean that you can only buy your clothes at Walmart that you wear to church. It has context. And the context is that they were intentionally flaunting their wealth, intentionally showing up to intentionally draw attention to themselves and away from, away from, from the Lord. So don't do that. So what should you do? He says, with propriety and, and moderation. And he uses two words here in verse 9. And the King James translates the word shamefacedness, which is a great word, um, and discretion. It's the second word. Propriety and moderation. Shamefacedness. It's a good word because it, it, the word actually means modesty mixed with shame. It's where the shamefacedness comes from. It, it's the idea that you would a woman would, would feel ashamed or guilty if she distracted someone or anyone from worshiping God. It's, it's that careful attention of the heart that, that, that she, would just, she would just rather die 
than draw attention away from the Lord. It's that attitude. And the second word that's used here is there's a is a sense of of leading to self-control, the moderation. It's to moderate themselves and to and to assist in the moderation of others. It's a where it's a rare word. It means discretion in their appearance. And this is also an attitude. It's a it's the attitude, the goal would be never leading others to sinful lust or inappropriate attention. Not drawing any attention to myself at all would, would be on the, on the Lord. And then this one has to do with, with presentation. Never leading others to inappropriate attention. And so I think that you can... You can craft two questions from that. Do I present myself in a way to draw undue attention to me and away from the Lord? Does this dress do so? And then number two, will what I have on help lead others toward self-control or awaken the opposite? Two good questions to, to ask. Now that's what they're not supposed to adorn themselves with. And then Paul turns in verse 10 to what they are what they are to clothe themselves with. Don't be so concerned over clothing. Be concerned with the godliness and good works. Look at verse 10. But which is proper for a woman professing godliness. I think it's interesting that he says what is proper for a woman professing godliness because that implies that women that don't profess godliness aren't going to be thinking about these kinds of things. So don't be surprised whenever the world dresses like the world or acts like the world. And he covers two things here, godliness and good works. If there should be anything drawn drawing the attention of others to you as a, as a woman, it should be your godliness and it should be your good works. That's what should stand out. Godliness is reverence toward the Lord and good works are those actions that follow that reverence. Paul says be more concerned about your reverence toward the Lord and your service for Him than, than your fashion. And then he goes into verse 11. Let the women learn command. And then qualifies that and the rest of what we, what we covered there this morning. There may come a time in preaching that or even believing that would be highly controversial. Praise the Lord that that's not the case yet. But whether it is or whether it isn't, it is the Word of the Lord. And believers need to hold on to it and to practice it.